I'm Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Anne Spee. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. What you gonna do with all that wine, all that wine inside that jug? I'm gonna get, 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 get you drunk, get you love drunk off my wine. wine. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Hi. Guess what day it is? Okay, today is like honestly the best it's every day. day. Today is every day because <laughs> everything has happened today. Yeah. Everything has happened today. Today is 420. Yes. And we also bottled our wine. Yes. Which also, by the way, probably the best batch we've done yet. Oh, okay. yes. Like, best batch bitches. Best batch bitches. That's what we're... That's what we're going to name. We're, that's our pseudonym today is best batch bitches. Yeah. So And it's recording day, you guys. And yeah. we're together because we're healed from COVID. Yes. yes. So we're not having to do this whole remote bullshit. We're actually back in my nook. Ready to record, drinking the wine we yeah. just bottled. You know what? We, we, we went through the COVID shit. We oh, got God, sick. Yeah. We did this. We did that. And then Easter came and Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> <on Thursday. laughs> and we, we were all like, Holy Spirit, activate. Holy, Holy Spirit, activate. And we're pure. Anyways, anyways, anyways. Happy Easter, happy Happy Easter, happy 420. We hope you guys have had a wonderful couple of weeks since our last little check-in with you guys. We did a little micro micro brew episode and we hope you guys enjoyed it and our understanding of the fact that two of us were kind of very, very very sick and just not in our right minds. Like, I mean, granted, normally we're not in our right mind frames. And you know what? Being (laughs) sick and having to take care of a sick husband with COVID and a sick child with COVID is hard. All it's I can think work. of is that like NyQuil commercial, Pam, Pam, Pam. Whenever somebody tells me that their boyfriend, uh, husband, or whatever is sick, that's what I think of. I'm like, oh my that's god, that's so funny. <laughs> that's a good commercial. It is a great commercial. It's like a IKEA's commercial. Start the car. Start the car. <laughs> um. Yeah. What is new in your ladies' lives? First of all, we got a new mic. Yes. yes. That we so didn't we mention. Did so that's it. another thing about today. So we're trying to upgrade. We're trying to like oomph it up a little, juice it up for you guys yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's like this 360 recording business. All I know is that it's Four taken minutes. our nook from being like a triangle to being like a whole gigantic circle. And I love it. Yeah, it's, it's nice. like a meditation circle. Yeah. Right now it's very, the ambiance is incredible. It is. Yeah. I kind of feel like we're meditating, but just, really what we're doing is talking about just absolutely horrible and self-medicating things. self-medicating with wine. And self-medicating, yes. <laughs> Which, we not laugh even. <laughs> <laughs> I also smoke some weed, so, you know, like. Yes, it's 420. Y'all, y'all know I don't to. do that all the time, but yes. Okay, but we had to because oh, it's 420. 100%. I mean, it's not going to be 420 when we release the episode, but. but Well, if you're listening to this, get into the spirit, get yourself a glass of wine and or grab yourself a joint and get comfortable or as uncomfortable. Yes. As we like to say, get uncomfortable, get uncomfortable. Um, so you guys, I wanted to, before we start the episode and our listeners, I know we're like five minutes into this already, but I'll be quick. Okay. Um, 
just want to give you guys a little bit of a laugh before we get into something I assume is going to be pretty heavy. So, um, you know do it. you guys want to know what happened to me this week? Yes, always. I don't know. So I was scrolling through TikTok. I found this really funny TikTok. It was like this really funny fart joke. Oh, and it was basically like this woman laying in bed and she's like, when my husband gets up at like 4.30 a.m. And then it's like silent, 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 like goes on. And then you just hear a fart. So I like, it's like this really long fart. And I laugh my ass off because like relatable. Hello. I can relate to this 100%. Okay. And so I was like, haha, that's funny. Send it to Nolan. He'll get it. Oh, no. Do you know who I sent it to instead? Oh, no. <laughs> My fucking day home lady. Oh, no. <laughs> I need to RIP right now. <laughs> I need to call into sick work and just leave because I need to RIP. I need to go RIP. Oh, God, I'm missing. You guys can cover my missing story on the podcast. Bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, on my way here today, I was listening to Morbid, a true crime podcast. And we were doing her, um, I don't think it's their most recent episode. So I think it there's is. one after this. It yep. is their most recent. Okay. So it's like a pseudo listener tales, but it's pseudo like one of their spooky lighthouse episodes. And they were talking about the execution rocks lighthouse. And Ash was telling this story. Okay. For Panzeram. Yes. yes. You guys yes. remember from Panzeram. Yes. That was our first and for at this point in time, only two parter right. episode. Yep. Um, we talked about that and what had happened there as far as Mr. Panzeram is concerned. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, and apparently what I learned on their episode is that you can actually like go there, not just for like a day tour or a night tour, but you can fucking stay the night if you wanted to. What? Now, I'll be at there's, there's no running water. Okay. There is a cot that you have to sleep on. Oh. And apparently, there's like cannibalistic seagulls or something like that. What? <laughs> like, cannibalistic seagulls? That's what I said. She's oh. like, she said that in her research, there was like bones, like seagull bones scattered oh. all around the rocks. Plus, you have to take like a half oh, like hour. seagulls eating seagulls. Yes. Oh, oh I thought it was like seagulls eating people. No, that's not what, <laughs> like, what you should be concerned about. Oh, because murder murder seagulls, not cannibals. What happens? As Ash said, what happens when there's no seagulls left for them to eat? Oh, COVID for you, right? But anyways, you have to take like a half hour to forty-five minute boat ride here Maybe first, that's... and then you have to climb a ladder up the rocks onto the fucking island. Yeah. I'll, I'll climb, but I'm seeing Miley Cyrus the whole way fucking there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, ladies, are we ready to dive into today's episode? Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for the laughs, because yeah. honest to goodness, you guys, this. uh like many of the cases that I bring to the table here, this one's not any easier to digest. Yeah. Uh, I have mentioned before how I've wanted to bring uh, a quote unquote solved case to the table that involves MMIW or uh, missing and murdered yeah. Indigenous women. Uh, but it's been rather difficult. Uh, and in my process of, of trying to think of a case to do, I actually remembered a pretty significant case um, when it comes to talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women. This is the case that sparked enough a national, that sparked enough national outrage, sorry, 
that the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was actually established. Wow. Now, I've talked about this inquiry in depth in a previous episode, but just briefly for those who do not know, in 2015, the federal government of Canada announced the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, or MMIWG, as a key government initiative to end the disproportionately high levels of violence against Indigenous women and girls. The National Inquiry must look into and report on the systematic cases of all forms of violence against Indigenous women and girls, including sexual violence. It must examine the underlying social, economic, cultural, institutional, and historical causes that contribute to the ongoing violence and particular vulnerabilities. That was hard. That one, that word is hard. That is hard when you're stoned and filled with wine. And rage. (laughs) And rage (laughs) of Indigenous women and girls in Canada. So. And and I'm sorry, not to interrupt or anything, but like. You said 2015 at the beginning of that little blurb, yeah. right? So just to put that in perspective, that's seven years ago. Yeah, seven, seven years, years ago. ago is when the government actually started caring about what happened to the people who owned this land before anybody. Yes, exactly. Which that is what indigenous means. So before we get into the homicide case itself, I actually want you to get to know the girl behind the movement the girl behind the media photos. I want you to really get to know Tina Fontaine and where Tina's fa- and where Tina's mental health was um, when her life was so brutally taken when she was just 15 years old. Tina Michelle Fontaine was born on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her mother was only 17 years old when she had Tina. Tina was the middle child out of three sisters. Tina's mother, Valentina Duck, was a member of the Blood Vein First Nation just north of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Her father, Eugene Fontaine, member of Sanguine First Nation, also not far from Winnipeg. Now, to know Tina Fontaine, you need to know a little bit about her parents as well. Now, this is where we enter the generational, sorry, the intergenerational Mm -hmm. trauma. Yeah. So Tina's mother at the age of six was placed in foster care. Otherwise known as, and from here on out in this episode, it's going to be referred to as CFS, which stands for Child and Family Services. Okay. Valentina ended up moving out to Winnipeg uh, because CFS essentially made her by the age of 12. And by that time, she had actually reported to them that she was being sexually exploited and being given alcohol. So you said CFS made her move out. Is that because, because of she like, was the in their care. Oh, No, that's oh, because okay, she okay, was okay, in their gotcha, care. Gotcha. Yeah, so when they're in the care of the foster system, right. they're in the care of CFS. Okay. And when you're in the care of CFS, you're pretty well just placed wherever the hell they can And so CFS you. made her move out. Yeah. So because, CFS okay. was like, you know, they took her out of her family's environment, um, placed her here or there, whatever. Eventually, she moves out to Winnipeg. Yeah. And so by the time she's out in Winnipeg, she's 12. Yeah. Within a very short time, she's reporting to CFS that she's been sexually exploited right. and being given alcohol and starting to on a regular basis, consume it. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. 
This would eventually lead her down the path of addiction, just like so many other members of her family. Now, why is this in Indigenous communities? I personally think that between the severe mental health crisis on reservations and the lack of resources to help the healing process and individuals to properly cope, not to mention the disgusting lack of some basic resources in some of our reservations across Canada. I'm sorry, but one reservation without clean drinking water is too many. Check your privilege and get uncomfortable. Valentina, at the age of 12, met Tina's father, Eugene, Eugene Fontaine. And you guys get this. When Valentina met Eugene, mm -hmm. so she was 12. Eugene was 23 years Ooh, old. Tricky. So CFS definitely tried to intervene in their relationship, but mm -hmm. they did so unsuccessfully. Yeah. and how, how are you unsuccessful at, like... Commandeering a twenty fucking well, three year old. I think he. I think you just said it perfectly. And for the audience, Christy was just air quotes tried, which is exactly it. Was there any actual effort made, or was it this is just another indigenous situation? Let them handle their own shit. <laughs> so, as disgusted as we may all be by Eugene in this moment, being twenty three years old and getting together with a twelve year old. I do want everyone to keep an open mind about him for Tina's sake. After all, this was her father whom she loved dearly. Despite the years of trauma and heartache that, you know, we all know that she went through growing up, it was still her dad. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Eugene at the age of 12 uh, would also move to Winnipeg just like Valentina did. Uh, he left home because of his father. So this would be Tina's grandfather, or as we say in Indigenous, yep. uh, Musham. Or at least that's how I know grandfather in... Musham! Yeah, Musham. So this would be Tina's Musham. Uh, and... My marshmallow Musham. <laughs> and he was actually a residential school survivor, wow. you guys. So needless to say, his experiences with that as a child led him and his family including his son Eugene, down a path of severe alcoholism and explosive anger and violence. Eugene would move to Winnipeg, like I said, at the age of 12 and learn to survive on his own with very little. Eventually, falling into the same addictions and behaviors he was trying so hard to run from. And can I just say, like, for a second there, if anybody wondering, like, you know, people go through trauma... And why turn to alcohol, alcoholism and drugs and that sort of thing? It's because that people don't get treated, so they self-medicate. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and you see this with a lot of people from, like, different families that have never been that supportive or have had their own issues and all that stuff. But with when it comes to the Indigenous culture of it, it's compounded because of everything else. Yeah. And that's when we say generational trauma, that's the domino effect of one thing gets passed down and it gets like, you know, almost well, bred right into you. Simplest way of looking at it too is that alcohol is the most readily available resource yeah. available yeah. to these individuals to cope. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's readily available to them. It's inexpensive. You know, it's, it's an easy way to make themselves not feel what they're feeling, yeah. but in the long run, just 
creates more it's just detrimental to them and society yeah exactly um so eugene and valentina meet uh their relationship obviously fueled by alcohol anger trauma and unhealthy coping mechanisms eugene and valentina would together have three children all of which would at some point end up in the foster care system of canada Eugene and Valentina would split when Tina was three years old, and Valentina would go on to another relationship having four more children. Tina, although in and out of foster care, was still living with her father in 2004 when Eugene was diagnosed with cancer. Fuck cancer. Fuck cancer. Absolutely. Unable to care for um, Tina and her younger sister, Uh, Eugene placed them with her great aunt and uncle, Thelma and Joseph Fable. Tina would actually often refer to her great aunt Thelma as grandma. Thelma and Joseph would become her caretaker. Tina lived next to Sankin First Nation uh, with them and attended a school where, like many struggling adolescents, began to act out uh, in class. Her mental health struggles started to show in her early years, as early as grade two. Her struggles were so bad that her family was curious and actually requested for CFS to get her tested for fetal alcohol syndrome. But like a lot of the promises made to Indigenous families struggling uh, and asking for help from the CFS, Help and testing were never delivered to Tina and her family. This, unfortunately, would become a very infuriating theme throughout this case. Mm -hmm. I'm upset already. Me too. As Tina continues to grow up, her struggle with mental health only escalates. She, like a lot of struggling adolescent youth, coped by running away, uh, turning to alcohol to numb the physical and mental pain, And, you know, her suffering, unfortunately, would not end here. So now we get to a very pivotal point in Tina's life. Mm -hmm. And let's please keep in mind that she's right now 11 years old. So on October 31st, 2011, Tina's father, Eugene Fontaine, 41, was murdered. He was beaten to death and left outside tied to her garden shed on the Sankeen First Nation. This is not the homicide case that I'm going to be getting into today, however. But for everyone's own curiosity, uh, two individuals would eventually plead guilty and serve nine years for manslaughter in Eugene's death. For um, my further curiosity, um, were they... Were the suspects indigenous or were they? They were, yes, yes. Uh, From what I've been able to find anyway, there is not a picture to be found of either one of them. (laughs) It's really irritating. So I am assuming because when I was watching one news report on um, what was happening outside the courthouse on the day of, they were yelling back, like the families were yelling back and forth at each other and they were both indigenous families. So I have to assume that they were. It was hard for Tina not to know all the gory details. CFS would promise Tina 
and her grandmother, Thelma, that Tina would receive grief counseling. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> I'm also just watching you struggle with this I wine bottle. <laughs> you know what? I've been the one tasked with this. Do, do you medicine. want me to try? I would love nothing more than to okay, try before try. I mangle the shit out of this. Sorry. Before, <laughs> before you mangle the shit out of it. You know what? Okay, so as I was saying, Tina would never get counseling. In fact, victim services would never actually sit down with Tina face to face. Wow. Way to oh go. God. Government of Canada. Tina mourns her father. She was only beginning to prepare for her father's passing because don't forget he had cancer. And Tina knew what that could potentially mean. Yeah. But sickness didn't take him. A brutal attack. Yeah, that's right. A brutal beating over money would take him. To memorialize him, she gets a tattoo with his name, the date of his death, and angel wings. And for the next couple of years, Tina would continue to struggle with her mental health, school, relationships, and her father's homicide would prove to be one trauma that pushes Tina too far. I'm sorry, how old is Tina at this point? Eleven. 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 As she grows more into her teens, the trial of her father begins. The sheer daily struggle of living this reality, plus having legitimate, untreated mental illness issues. This obviously led Tina into a continuous loop of breaking rules, skipping school, running away from her grandma, drinking, fighting, etc., etc. We all know the story. Well, and you guys, like, PTSD, bipolar disorder, this stuff going untreated, I mean, if you guys are anything, I mean, our listeners, if you guys are anything like us, we're three girls that are heavily medicated for yeah. our own mental health issues, um, <laughs> personally found that this is a trend in the true crime world. Because yes, it is. It's you know, understanding the psych, it's understanding like a whole lot of what goes behind not just the victims or the perpetrators or whatever. But another- but I know what it's like to be off my meds. Yes. When I'm not taking them consistently and I'm not doing a good job of taking care of myself, I know what it feels like just to be off my meds, let alone not ever knowing what it's like to be treated yes. for it. Because at least I have yeah. like a point of comparison. Exactly. Like Tina didn't even be given a chance to understand yeah. what was going on in her brain at such a young age. Yep. Thelma would reach out for help from government services, from child and family services, from police, from fucking anybody. No one gave Tina help. No one gave Tina counseling. No one gave her a victim's advocate. No one helped her when she was in the most pain she could possibly experience as an 11-year-old girl. I can imagine. So if you haven't already pushed pause and taken a break, we're going to move on to the time when Tina is now 15. She continues having issues at school. And obviously continues to have issues with her mental health. Uh, And her mental health has actually led her to now experimenting with self-harm. The RCMP even admitted Tina at one point uh, for cutting herself. Like admitted her to a hospital. Right. 
However, after doctors and counselors spoke to her about the incident, uh, they decided to just clean her up, bandage her up, uh, and just send her on her way. Oh my God. <laughs> so a 15-year-old girl, a kid, child, who has been just admitted to a hospital for cutting themselves, was just released. Tina eventually made a life-altering decision to run away once again. But this time, it was to Winnipeg where her mother, Valentina, lived. Now, Valentina has not cleaned up her act, folks. Unfortunately. She is still in a world of addiction and very much dealing with what comes along with that lifestyle. Tina's time here in Winnipeg with her mother is not good. Her mother, like, there was more of a a best friend relationship kind of thing than it was mother-daughter. I see. I've seen that very close and personal. Yeah. Her time in Winnipeg with her mother would be the first time that Tina would be sexually exploited. Tina continues down a dark and painful path of self-medicating with drugs, booze, and men. Uh Wait, how? Tina? She's 11. At this time, she's 15. 15. Still not any better. And all that is probably very readily available to her right now. Yeah. It would be this path that ultimately leads Tina to her demise. So we've talked about Tina's life. I've told you about her mom, dad, the intergenerational trauma. As the more times I say it, the harder it is to say. You know what? (laughs) I love that every time you say it, it's totally something different. (laughs) I actually, I'm here for that. And I'm a little bit obsessed. It's... I struggle with telling these cases, you guys. So I do. I get I, I get tongue-tied. Anyway, you guys, we've now talked about how she grew up. It's time to talk about her last 24 hours of life. Oh, do we have to? Oh, I don't we, know. We do have to. We I don't do. know if I'm emotionally ready Megan, for this. Get uncomfortable. Grab your wine. Grab a joint. So and get uncomfortable. <laughs> it is. Do you have a joint in there? I have my vape. Yeah, you do. Give, give Megan her vape That's a pen. good girl. Well, we have taken our drink break and our smoke break, so it is time... To get back to this case, and just a reminder, everybody, if you need to take a mental health break and you need to push pause, that is okay. We support that. We are now going to get into Tina Fontaine's last 24 hours of life. There is a lot to her last day of living, so I'm going to kind of give like quick point form. Cole's notes. Cole's notes-ish kind of things. Uh, just kind of in hopes of not being too wordy and confusing our audience because yeah. I don't really don't want our listeners to get confused. Early hours of August 8th, 2014, she's taken by a uh, CFS officer to a youth shelter. She's clearly banged up. She's a little bit bruised and she very clearly smelt of alcohol. She was left at the shelter when... Hours later, 
Police would stop a drunk driver with an expired dri- like driving license. Oh. And in that vehicle... Expired light driver's license or plate? Like driver's license. Okay. Like so actual license. plate and be like, that's expired. No, they pull him over because he was driving like a okay. fucking drunk ass yeah. because he was drunk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then when they pulled him over and realized he had an expired license. Gotcha. Also, what we're going to learn down the road a little bit is that this vehicle is ultimately stolen. Okay. Anyway. So hours later, this vehicle was pulled over uh, for driving like an idiot. Who's in the vehicle in the passenger seat, you guys? Tina. Tina. You bet your ass it's Tina. And she's very clearly intoxicated. And the police officer notes she's very obviously a fucking minor. No. Police take her to the shelter once again. But shockingly enough, she left once before. Without anyone noticing, so of course she, she was able to do it again. Yes. Surprise, surprise. Approximately six and a half hours after leaving the youth center for a second time, Tina is found unconscious in a back alley close to the University of Winnipeg. Also, I want to let you guys know this. This is known to not only the community, but to police themselves that this area she was found is a popular area for sexual exploitation. Police were unable to get a response from her, nor was she wearing clothing from the waist down. Oh no, she a baby. I know, and so Tina wouldn't wake up, so the police call 911, EMS show up. She was eventually able to regain consciousness once EMS showed up, uh, and they took her to the hospital. Tina would hear admit to doctors and CFS uh, agents that she was with a man, an older man, drinking and smoking weed. She didn't know she was sexually assaulted. And when the topic was broached with her, she refused to believe it and even refused to test. She said, no, that didn't happen to me. But I mean, this girl was found in a back alley with no clothing from her waist down. You know, like, why are we even asking at this? Point? Like, yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Why are you giving her an option? Like, to you're a even... minor. We have to do this at this point. Well, exactly, like, and that's what it should have fucking been. Yeah, yeah. That's what it should have fucking been. They just let that be all okay because I am not. It's like, I'm sorry. You're not. You're not old enough to be able to drink, but you're old enough to decide whether or not you've been sexually. Yeah. Okay. The hospital, like, I mean, mere hours. After this, would actually have released her into the custody of CFS. So this was around three o'clock on the same day. Okay, so at this point, she's been brought to her shelter, left it for a second time, found unconscious in an alley, gone to the hospital, and now she's just put into the care of these people who bring her to an emergency hotel placement. So these emergency hotel placement bullshit, whatever, there was basically no supervision for any of the youth that was there. So it was very easy for them to just kind of come and go as they please. Now, important fact to note about this is because of Tina's case, that's no longer allowed and that's no longer a practice. So these emergency hotel placements, they don't exist anymore. 
On August 9th, 2014, Tina would be reported for the last time by CFS as missing, and a citywide BOLO, otherwise known as Be on the Lookout, was issued. Now, as in every case I seem to bring here, it wouldn't be another three days until actual efforts were made to find Tina, or that her family was actually even made aware that she was missing. Oh my god. The whole her being a runaway, unfortunately, didn't really help in, right. in the whole urgency of this case. Right. However, in case you were counting, between police, CFS, and doctors, there were at least three or four different occasions where multiple people serving in these fields had an opportunity to help and hold on to Tina. And they didn't. On Sunday, August 17th, again, 2014, two local fishermen were at Red River near the Alexander Dock in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. There they found something floating in the water wrapped in a brown and green duvet. It was wrapped in plastic. At 1.50 p.m., the scene was locked down and secured. That's when it was discovered that it was the body of a 73-pound young female murdered, wrapped in a bag, weighed down with rocks, and thrown in a river. The authorities were later able to identify the body as Tina from her tattoo that she had of her father with the wings and his date of death. Oh, man. That's how they determined it was her. (sighs) Investigations are quickly launched by local authorities and CFS. Now, CFS knew from before Tina went missing, when, like, her whole last 24 hours, she had made mention of wanting to purchase a bike. What they would later learn is she planned to buy this bike from an older gentleman that she met on the street, Sebastian. When Tina goes to purchase the bike, Sebastian has already sold it to someone else for drugs. Angry, Tina calls and actually reports uh, Sebastian, the truck that he has, as being stolen. Now, clearly, that kind of determines that there's a little bit more of a relationship other than just bumped into each other on the street. Only what Tina didn't know was what Sebastian's real name was, was Raymond Joseph Cormier. And he is, get this, you guys. 51 years old. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. So Raymond Cormier was no was a very well-known drug user and addict that wandered the streets of Winnipeg, being all disgusting and drugged out day to day. And listen, I say disgusting because Raymond, up to this point of his life, has been accused of has maybe not been accused of, but actually like charge of 92 felonies that is how long this gentleman's rap sheet is are convicted just charged charged yeah crazy so this douche canoe is not attempting to be a good person (laughs) or live a healthy experience he's just in like his own little world of drugs so he's a shit human being Mm -hmm. 100 percent, yeah multiple witnesses would place raymond with tina in the time before she went missing some Yeah, 
Some even say they saw them arguing about the bike. Ooh, right. There were also witnesses that said they saw Raymond around the streets of Winnipeg with a duvet that looked awfully lot, uh, awfully lot alike. Is that what I'm trying to say? Awfully An awful lot, lot alike. alike. The one that Tino was found in. That's fucked up. Witnesses even came forward stating they heard him talking about wanting to have sex with Tina. Oh, God. I can go for hours talking about all the eyewitnesses because the amount of eyewitnesses is actually staggering in this case. So a jail informant about a month after she was found would come forward and state that he had information on Tina's case uh, that would support all of these allegations. The informant stated that Cormier had admitted to having sex with Tina and that he was hiding out in a townhouse in a certain area of Winnipeg. Oh, no. So the police go and check out this area, this townhouse that, like, Raymond's supposed to be. Lo and behold, that's where he fucking is. So not only has this jail informant said, hey, he's admitted to me to have sex, but I can tell you exactly where he is. And then he's fucking there. Like, let can we just let that speak for itself? Sounds sounds like the truth to me. So police take Raymond into custody uh, and question everyone living there at the townhouse with him. These witnesses would also admit to Raymond talking openly about him wanting Tina to quote unquote just do him. Oh my god. Disgusting. Child. Basically, in the interview, uh, once Raymond's taken into the custody, uh, I'm actually going to post the interview in our links because there is a video that video out there of it. So you can watch it for yourself. Uh, He denies hanging out with Tina and having sex with her at first. He stated that all that had happened was that he, she started freaking out about the bike that she wanted. He threw some drugs at her and he left and he never saw her again thinking, oh, I'll just see her in a couple of days and it'll just be. Oh yeah. Laissez-faire. Laissez-faire. As Christy likes to say. So the stolen truck, his townhouse, the duvet, the plastic sheet, they were all sent to be investigated. Unfortunately, all the time that she had spent in the water, which was about almost a week, there was no DNA evidence to be collected on Tina or any of the other pieces of evidence. So Raymond would be released. No. Police would attempt to use, and we're throwing back to something Megan's brought up before, the Mr. Big Sting operation. They try this, uh, however. I'm surprised. I actually, like, I'm very impressed that they would spend the money on that for an indigenous person. They kind of had to because then, like, outroar, not only in their local city, but the nation itself. There was a very big spotlight. This is 2014. Yeah. I'd say and so, people are getting much more like 100%, but I just want to I accentuate that fact yeah. that to know so yeah. that our listeners know that your voice does matter. It and does yes, matter. It 100%. It Maybe does. it's not going to change the like very basic structure of how things are done, but it can make a difference. It can. Yeah. 
when the police were to attempt to use this Mr. Bing, Mr. Bing, uh, <laughs> I've watched way too much Friends. <laughs> the Mr. Big Sting Did operation. Did you be any more guilty? <laughs> they try to use it to. They try to use this to get Raymond to confess. However, he doesn't. Uh, he even actually admits later uh, that he kind of knew that something was going on. His neighbors kind of gave him the impression he had the thought. Uh, they were undercover. So there was a lot of things uh, that were said during that time that co- like couldn't be used. Yeah. Because it was so easily taken out of context. So he, right. it, it was just it was just one of those he knew uh, I feel anyway. He knew he wanted to manipulate fuck and, no. and he also got out his confession whilst being a total shitbag. On December 12th, 2015, with what little evidence they had, Winnipeg authorities bring Raymond in once more to question him. This is when he is finally arrested and charged with second-degree murder of Tina Fontaine. The trial began January 29th, 2018. Unfortunately, due to circumstantial evidence, no DNA evidence, no definitive cause of death, and no witnesses being allowed to testify at the trial. Um, why? <laughs> Don't know. Couldn't find that answer, unfortunately. On February 22nd, that's three weeks later, Raymond Joseph Cormier was found by a jury of fellow white peers not guilty. And acquitted in the murder of Tina Fontaine. Okay, so what was the defense against him then? Really? That's, you know what's really sad is that, like, it's supposed to be a jury of your peers. So it's supposed to be a jury of the people that represent you and your character and your, like, uh, well, or and they did represent that they represented Raymond. But that was it. They didn't represent Indigenous people at all. No one represented Tina in that jury. That's true. Not one person. No. Yeah, that's so unfair. There was not one that looked like Tina. It's so aggravating. Mm-hmm. To this day, Tina's death remains unsolved. Like so many other MMIW cases across Canada, there was no true justice for Tina's family. However, Tina would not die in vain. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, her death drew national attention from across Canada and fueled calls that would ultimately lead to the 2050 national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls because of Tina's tragic story. People were so outraged that the call to have documentation and reports available to the public on these cases finally came into fruition. And unlike before Tina's tragic death, deaths that occurred while And while youth were in, like, the custody of child and family services, these incidences were now made public before they were not. Prior to this, they were actually kept secret. And only the ministry would actually be aware of any of these situations happening. That is disgusting. Tell me you're guilty without telling me you're guilty. Right? Keeping things secret. So because of all these changes, you guys, because of Tina's, tragic story we are one tiny tiny step closer 
to truth and reconciliation. Now, one last thing, because if you're like me, you are probably wondering where in the world is Mr. Raymond Joseph Cormier now? As of March 2021, Cormier was arrested and is now facing charges related to four break-ins at apartment buildings in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He faces multiple charges, including commercial break-and-enter, residential break-and-enter, possession of break-and-enter tools, and possession of property obtained by crime. Haha, fuck yourself, buddy. Needless to say, we have not seen the last of Raymond Cormier. I only hope that while he is incarcerated on these current crimes, they can find a way to finally make the charges stick against him in Tina's case. I do, however, think that this might be wishful thinking. If we go off history, it won't be long before Raymond is back in news headlines for murdering someone else. Let's just hope when that day comes, all of our 15-year-old girls are safe, indigenous or not. Great episode, Brittany. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that it, like, you know, there's so much to talk about surrounding MMIW or missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. There is a woman right now who, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard, whether you're from Canada or you're not, but I'm sure that you've heard within the last few months about the convoy and the freedom convoy against COVID-19. During that time, this woman, this brave woman, decided that she was going to take a stand and do something very beneficial for the MMIW movement. And what she did, her name is um, Crystal Fox. She's 56 years old. She's a grandmother from Treaty 6, okay? Her team, her and her team, they began their walk from and now i did try to google this to say it correctly and i apologize if i'm not saying it correctly but liquigan i think territory liquigan territory in what has briefly been known as victoria bc anyways she began this walk on february 18th with the plan to reach um the beothuk territory and what has briefly been known as St. John's, Newfoundland by December. So she's doing this over a year. Okay. And she has a Facebook, she has a TikTok, and I will find this and I will share the links. And she's doing this walk to bring Her, attention yes. to, to this. And if you guys listening right now can just share this episode with literally everybody, share it on your Facebook. It's important. This message is important. Tina's story is important. Everything Brittany has told us is important. And this is something that we still struggle with. Like, this is a recent Well, you guys, like, bring it down back to us. Like, my own grandmother, my own Coco, was a residential school survivor. Yeah. So, if you want to place me in this story of Tina Fontaine, I'd be Tina Fontaine. My mom would be Eugene Fontaine. Yeah. Anyway, there is so many different levels and layers to this onion that we could unpeel. Absolutely. However, uh, we you don't... Know, I love that you said that because I just started watching Shrek today. Oh, it's so <laughs> good. It's so good. I love Shrek. 
But, you know, I don't want to take away from Tina's story because that's why we were here tonight was to talk about Tina's experience and Tina's story. So on that, we will provide any um, online support, any phone support uh, that you may need, mental health, Indigenous help, whatever. We'll support that in our links for you. We hope that you guys enjoyed our episode or or maybe enjoyed is not the right word. I hope that you guys were educated from this episode. Yes. Absolutely. And that yes. you enjoyed listening to something that you didn't know about previously and that it made a difference in your life. Well, maybe you knew about it and what we provided you is a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for always listening and yes, supporting thanks, everyone. our podcast. I believe you can uh, reach us on our socials, Megan. Absolutely. You can find us on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. We're on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. And I believe we're on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also email us if you have any feedback, any questions, or any cases that you want us to cover at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. We love you. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.